1: Criminal justice reform does not mean letting people out of jail. It means holding them accountable and putting them in jail. When you don't solve a cold case, you leave the the perpetrator on the street. Did, has she left like this before? No, no, never. That's, 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 and it's not common for her to be gone no, like late yeah. at night? No, not
0: especially since my
1: daughter got out of the Jessica wasn't just trash that was thrown away. The
0: fact that you have no idea what's going on is absurd so i put in there you know like would would you think i would hurt her or something
1: the mayor has asked the federal justice department for help cleaning up the new orleans police long plagued by what many see as a culture of corruption why did the family find her body and not the police you don't care enough to make sure that you have the right person in the crosshairs of the legal justice system then you are ignoring evidence and you're ignoring the person that caused the real harm. I don't want to be sexist, but women
0: tend to do that. You know, at least to me, I put it that
1: way. I mean, so close to home, too. Like, what an utter failure.
0: This tells you that this can happen to anybody. Nobody is immune
1: from crime. Justice to me is being in a courtroom and the person who did this to my sister, the judge says guilty. on today's episode of Mile Higher.
0: Most conspiracy theories are you can definitely Mm -hmm. drive yourself mad going down the rabbit hole, right? Oh,
1: sure. Well, it starts making you question everything. It is one that took place back in the 90s. And it's still interesting to this day.
0: Danny Casalero.
1: I mean, I think he would want to at least leave it behind if, if that was really the case for someone else to pick up on. Well,
0: again, you got to remember he's receiving these calls and death yep. threats. And I'm sure he, he thinks he's being watched.
1: Although there is some evidence, convincing evidence for as well. So it's tough.
0: It's, it's honestly unbelievable what the American public didn't know in the 1980s.
1: Yeah, well, especially before the Internet, before it was... Right. Well,
0: how would people even know that this existed? Exactly. And they still don't know what happened to it to this day. Hey, what's up, everybody?
1: Welcome back to Mile Higher Podcast, episode 279. I'm your host, Kendall.
0: And I'm your host, Josh.
1: And we are joined by our producer, Janelle. Hey. How's it going? How's it going, y'all? Well, today we have a very interesting case to go over with all of you. It's a highly suspicious death that people have different opinions on. We're going to be kind of sharing ours and our thoughts here as we go through it. Um, It is one that took place back in the 90s and is still interesting to this day.
0: This one is especially interesting because we go into quite a bit of government conspiracy land here. Mm -hmm. Back in the 1980s, there was a lot of very shady things going on. Not to say that shady shit (laughs) still doesn't happen in the government, but we're talking very, very, very serious organized crime. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting about this particular case is that, Danny Casolaro was one of several individuals who were probing during the Reagan-Bush administration and looking into a lot of crime that was happening on many different fronts, as well as the CIA, uh, multiple banks, lawyers, that were all involved in very, very organized international crime. And there was multiple people that were investigating or probing this conspiracy, which has been, Uh, coined the octopus conspiracy because there's all these tentacles that come off of it Mm -hmm. with obviously all these different agencies and people involved and a lot of international affairs involved with it as well. And there's multiple deaths, suspicious deaths involved with this, including Danny's death that were ruled a suicide when the families of those victims said, Absolutely not. Mm-hmm. There, there there's no way that these guys took their own lives. They were taken out because they were getting too close to the octopus. And it's some of it is kind of confusing, so so yeah. bear with us because we're going to try to explain it as simply as we can. But there I mean it's it's called the octopus for a reason because there's just so many rabbit holes that you can go down with this one. But it is very interesting because I think it really does show that. If you get too far down the government conspiracy rabbit hole, your life could absolutely be at risk if you start trying Mm -hmm. to expose, you know, all the shady shit that they're doing.
1: That there's a bullet with your name on it, as we always say.
0: Yeah, exactly. And in this case, not a bullet, but a razor blade with your name on it. Yes. So, yeah, this is a, a very... Very serious and and also very disturbing. We're gonna be talking about ob- obviously self harm things like that. So mm-hmm. just forewarning on that. Mm-hmm. But I think this is an important one to talk about because to this day the family believes that he was killed, and yet you know there's been no justice for him, and there was a total cover up that happened too with the local authorities. Oh yeah, because we're talking about Seems the Department of Justice obvious. covering this up, CIA. Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of nefarious shit going on.
1: Before we jump in, though, we have a Few quick announcements, reminders, things of that nature. First of all, we have new merch. We are so excited right about this it. launch. Yes.
0: Well, it's a new merch item. It's not yes, a whole collection. That's or anything, true, but
1: we went with one item for each show and we really went with quality this time. We wanted to give you guys something that will last you, this keep is you the warm.
0: Best hoodie we've ever done. For hands sure. Down.
1: Yes. This this whole collection for all the shows. The the hoodies. Yeah, it's a heavyweight super hoodie. High
0: it's got puffed mile higher print on the front, and it's got our basically like our sign, essentially. We'll show it. Oh, you want me to do a little yeah, spinzy? let's okay. do a model. Okay.
1: Oh, yeah. <laughs> I love that. Looks so good, and I'm obsessed with this color.
0: They're very big. Mm-hmm. So. That is a good point to me. Size down.
1: Yeah, I would recommend sizing down. But if
0: you like it a little bit oversized, then you can do, you know, your normal size. It'll just be a little bit bigger. But- yeah. But really nice at milehigher.shop.
1: Also another reminder, it is giving season, my friends. And if you are looking for organizations to give back to this time of year, we would recommend the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children because your donation can go twice as far until the end of the year because we are going to be matching all of your donations to NECMEC between now and the end of 2023. So it's a great time to give back any amount. And you can find that linked below. The link is kind of confusing to, to verbalize. Yeah, so. just go into the description box yeah. for show notes. Yeah, you'll find it there. But yes, and a big thank you to all of you who have donated in advance. Um, we really appreciate it. NECMEC super appreciates it. They are always blown away by our audience's generosity during these campaigns. But let's go ahead and start with a background on Danny or Joseph Daniel Casalero, who was born on june sixteenth, nineteen forty seven in Fort George, Meade, Maryland, to his parents Francis and Joseph Casalero Sr. His father was a successful obstetrician and he was the second of six siblings, including his brother, Dr. Anthony or Tony Casalero, and his brother John, and also his two sisters. Unfortunately, one sibling did die of an illness at age one. And Danny came from a very Catholic family he was always a friendly person he was six foot tall good looking athletic and liked to box he was also a big reader and loved poetry he was also a very adventurous guy with a sort of restless soul and he was ready to get out of suburban virginia and see the world for himself and he was also the romantic sort he thought of himself as sort of a gatsby like figure in fact he loved that book and he loved quoting it he was also very charming and very suave with the ladies. He was an all-around cool and charismatic guy. He liked hanging out in bars. He liked women, Hemingway, and more than anything, he loved his friends. In the late 60s, at age 17, his younger sister Lisa died of a drug overdose, unfortunately, in Haight-Ashbury. And they were apparently never able to determine whether her death was an accident or a suicide. And the family believes that Lisa did die by suicide. And this event made Danny even more anti-suicide. And again, his family was very Catholic. And as many of you know, suicide is considered a mortal sin in Catholicism. So Danny graduated from Providence College in 1968. And from there, he hit the ground running with his writing career. He went back and forth writing both fiction and nonfiction pieces, including two books and a slew of articles. And two things to note here, it appears that Danny sort of talked a big game, but sometimes didn't deliver and may have overstated his resume at times. He also had a solid right-wing bend to him. Danny lived in Fairfax, Virginia, a D.C. suburb, where he raised thoroughbred Arabian horses and also worked as an investigative journalist. Danny was married to his wife, Terrell, who was a former Miss Virginia for 10 years They had one child together, a son named Trey, and unfortunately, they did end up getting divorced towards the end of the 70s. She moved to Florida, and Trey stayed in Virginia to live with Danny. And the breakup was hard on Danny. He loved her a lot, and it didn't seem like he wanted things to end. And at one point, he even started writing a romantic novel about her titled Pursuit.
0: After the breakup, Danny kind of left his journalism career, and instead he became sort of an entrepreneur he worked for then bought trade journals about computers and data processing cuz this is kind of when all of that really started becoming a big thing a lot of you know big companies started being born around this time and you know there's a lot of money in tech so obviously his life is getting a lot better he's starting to get more money and he's starting to date a lot of very beautiful women cuz obviously he's a good-looking guy he's got got money again and he really didn't have as much time for all those investigative you know, journalism projects that he was doing before at this period in time. In the mid-1980s, Danny started dating his longtime girlfriend, an ad executive named Wendy Weaver. But as the rest of the decade went on, Danny was sort of drifting. He ended up selling his trade journals, but because he wasn't necessarily the best businessman, the money he made off the sale really didn't reflect the amount of work that he had put into those journals. And this deal left Danny with some bitterness. And he internalized a lot of this, and when he noticed that his morale had taken a hit, he was under a lot of pressure to succeed in a high-achieving environment, which he was in. And at this point, he really kind of realized, you know, I need something big. I need a big project to revitalize him and something that he could really be proud of. And it had to make up for that bad business deal he had just gotten out of. And this time it needed to be a story, not just any story, the story. And this motivation led him to what Danny called, quote unquote, the octopus, a supposed conspiracy so elaborate and dangerous, a story so big that it ended up being the last project Danny ever worked on. Danny's previous work included articles about a lot of the the different things going on at the time, the Iran-Contra affair, the October surprise, BCCI, and a slew of other things according to his resume but this next story, the octopus would tie all of these events together. So, you know, obviously none of us were around in the 1980s, so I do not really know, you know, I didn't really pay attention in history class either, which at this point I wish I had. But just to give you a little brief summary of like what these things he was looking into were. So the Iran-Contra affair was a secret US arms deal that took place in the 1980s that traded missiles and other arms in order to free some American hostages being held by terrorists in Lebanon. But it also used funds from the arms deal to support armed conflict in Nicaragua or the Nicaraguan Contras. The controversial deal and the ensuing political scandal threatened to bring down the presidency of Ronald Reagan. So that was going on. And then there's also the October surprise, which is still a term that's that's used today. But basically what that means is it's a game changing event that can irreparably damage one candidate's chances and boost the others when talking about politicians It can come in the form of a calculated political attack, basically still a surprise to the public and the candidate. It's brought against or something unplanned that can critically change the course of an election, for example, uh, Ronald Reagan's presidency. And like a more recent example of this, uh, somebody might consider an October surprise would be like Donald Trump's presidency and the coronavirus uh, pandemic and kind of how all that unfolded, if you remember what that was like. Uh, Some people coined that an October surprise as well. So like the biggest fear in Ronald Reagan's inner circle is that President Carter, who was running, you know, running against him at the time, would get an unexpected boost in the campaign from this October surprise. And so when Reagan won the election, literally minutes after he was inaugurated in January 1981, the Iranian government freed American hostages who had been held in Tehran for over a year. So it the, it's still kind of confusing. But hopefully that gives you a little bit of understanding of, you know, there's a lot of. Political moves being made, and some of it's you know not always by the book. And then BCCI stands for the Banks of Crooks and Criminals International, or the Bank of Credit and Commerce International, technically, uh, depending on what your search engine brings up when you type that in. But this was basically a huge um, group of banks, some of the largest global banks at the time. They had twenty-two billion in deposits and offices in seventy-two countries, and. You know, these banks were involved with a lot of nefarious activities, and so that's a whole other story in itself. But Mm -hmm. these are all things that Danny was looking into. So this leads us to the next big story he was looking into called the Inslaw case. So like we mentioned before, Danny owned trade journals related to computers and data processing, and this work earned him many contacts in that field. And one of those contacts was able to put him in touch with a couple by the name of Bill and Nancy Hamilton. Now the Hamiltons were the founders of a software company named Inslaw, I N S L A W. Inslaw developed a program called Promise or P R O M I S, which stands for Prosecutor's Management Information System. It was an information management system designed for law enforcement to use in case management and record keeping. Now Promise at this time was very revolutionary in its design and its application. It would allow data to be shared among different agencies way easier than it could be shared before. It was originally designed for prosecutors' offices to track street crime, court hearings, you know, who showed up, where and when, stuff like that. Because as you can imagine, a lot of that was manual before that. So the US government was very interested in this promise software. They wanted to use it not just in prosecutors' offices, but in all sorts of different government and law enforcement agencies. They're like, oh, this mm-hmm. could this could be really good. Yeah. So in 1982, they inked a $9.2 million deal with Inslaw and Promise would then be installed in 20 US attorney offices and 70 more if the first 20 went well. But the implementation of this software had problems from the get-go. Two years into their three-year contract with Inslaw, the US Department of Justice started withholding millions of dollars in payments to the Hamilton's company. They're just like straight up not paying them, which these lack of payments ended up forcing them into bankruptcy. And it turns out that this was all a plan. It was by design that they did this. The Department of Justice was intentionally playing a cat and mouse game with Inslaw, trying to send it into bankruptcy so they could buy the company in liquidation. So they were literally bankrupting it yeah. so that they can then go buy it and then do whatever they want with this software, How insane which is that. crazy. Yeah. And then on top of that, it was illegally selling the software to different U.S. agencies like the CIA and NSA. And we all know... That especially before Edward Snowden came out and and spilled the beans on the NSA, I mean, back in the day they used to do. I mean, and I think they still do, just in different capacities. Well, but I think they've just gotten better. They've at gotten hiding better it. at hiding it for sure.
1: They were pretty sloppy back then.
0: But I mean, it's were, worse now. They were doing all kinds of crazy shit back then, though. I mean, of course, it's it's honestly unbelievable what the American mm-hmm. public didn't know in the 1980s. Yeah,
1: well, especially before the internet, before it was right well how would
0: people even know that this
1: existed exactly this episode of mile higher podcast is brought to you by huggies little movers and josh and i love huggies we love little movers especially now that we have a little mover and let me tell you friends she is on the move and huggies knows that babies come in all shapes and sizes and their tushies do too So Huggies' best-fitting diaper is their little movers with its curved and stretchy fit. Moms know that there's nothing worse than an ill-fitting diaper, especially for your active babies. And we love Huggies because we can rely on them to keep our baby covered while she's moving around. And Huggies' little movers are curved, so our baby feels comfortable no matter how much she's moving around. And like I said, she's moving around a lot. And they also offer up to 12 hour protection against leaks, which is a game changer, especially because our daughter normally sleeps 11 to 12 hours a night, and her Huggies have never failed us. There's seriously never been a night where we go in and there's a major leak going on or something else. And it's really, really nice to just have that peace of mind that she's covered. She's not gonna be uncomfortable and wet during the night, and we're not gonna have to wake up to change her. So get your baby's butt into Huggies Best Fitting Diapers. Puggy's little movers, we got you, baby. But there's more. Inslaw discovered that Canadian authorities were using the promised software, but the company had never licensed the use of the software to the Canadian government. So that means that they had gotten it from somewhere else. It was alleged that the people in the Reagan administration were selling off illegal copies of the software to anyone willing to pay for it. The Hamiltons hired investigators, and in March of 1990, they introduced them to Ted Gunderson, former FBI agent turned freelance conspiracy investigator. Ted said he had some information on the DOJ theft of promise. But the problem was Ted was not the most reputable guy. He was involved in pretty much all conspiracy theories at the time, including the satanic panic, and he ran with another shady guy named Michael Reconosciuto. This Michael guy also claimed to have inside information about promise.
0: So basically like whistleblowers um, is what we're talking about here.
1: Michael himself was a very interesting character. To say the least, he claimed to have worked for the CIA on many top secret projects. And in 1973, at age 25, Michael was sentenced to up to two years in prison for drug manufacturing. To be more specific, he was arrested for manufacturing LSD MDA and PCP in a sketchy underwater lab below Seattle's Duwamish River
0: which I think kind of the implications of this is that he was working for you know he claims he worked for the CIA and if you remember a lot of the CIA programs at the time around that period you were talking Mm MKUltra there's a bunch of other projects that were basically experimenting with these psychedelic drugs so the way I kind of put together is potentially Michael was manufacturing these drugs for these clandestine groups to use in their experiments or whatever they were actually researching at the time or using against the, you know, their enemies or whatever. So their spy operations.
1: And of course, Michael said the whole thing was a setup. He claimed that gangsters forced him to manufacture these drugs. At his trial, Michael's father claimed the whole thing was a misunderstanding and that he was doing underwater research on pollutant cleanup.
0: I love that. (laughs) Yeah. That's, that's so far from the other alternative here. Yeah. He's just underwater doing research.
1: For pollutants. He said that the DOJ put secret back doors into the distributed software that allowed the U.S. to spy on its users. So essentially, if they gave Canada promise, they could use the program to covertly spy on them.
0: Which this is all so sketchy. And, yeah. when, and when, you know, it's a lot harder to do this today. But back when, you know, computers were really starting to be a big thing and there's a lot of people didn't really understand how software worked and, mm-hmm. you know, they didn't have the the experts to know how to, and, you know, analyze the software to make sure there was no, you know, compre- you know, the software wasn't compromised in any way. So, of course, the DOJ, this all makes sense to me. It's like they found the software. They're like, this is great. We'll use this to spy on everybody that we want to. And they'll think we're just helping them by selling them this license for the software. (laughs) Yet they're literally stealing it from uh, the family that created it and bankrupting them so that they can then just give it to whoever they want. And then they can alter it as well. Like, Like they took the software and then created those back doors so that you basically have remote access or, you know, you're being fed information about what's happening inside the software without the other person knowing it is is the general gist of what a backdoor is um in in a software application but a really smart idea highly illegal though but this was this was the department of justice at the time
1: oh yeah now the proceeds from the inslaw sales were being used to fund covert operations in nicaragua central america and the middle east and so michael submitted his sworn affidavit to the House Investigative Committee looking into the Inslaw scandal. And within a week of that submission, DOJ agents arrested him for manufacturing crystal meth. And this obviously damaged his credibility and made it harder to nail the DOJ for what they did to Inslaw.
0: Which again, was he really doing these things that he was being accused of? Or was this just how they they managed to get him locked up and get him him to stop, stop talking about and revealing all of these all this discreet information about all these crimes being perpetrated by the DOJ at the time. And he would argue that, yeah, I'm being silenced, essentially. But
1: And he could be right.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I'm curious to hear what all of you think about that. But the committee did have someone who had unimpeachable credibility. And that was Elliot Richardson, the Hamilton's lawyer and former attorney general under Richard Nixon. Elliot had actually resigned in 1973 because he didn't want to participate in the cover up of the Watergate scandal.
0: Which smart move on his part. Yeah. Not to get involved in that.
1: He said that there were clear signs that the government was involved in some sort of corruption and cover up job. What do you know?
0: Yeah. I mean, just to give you some perspective at how big of a deal this promise software was, is that at this particular time in the 80s, to have this legal automation software was revolutionary like this was a multi-billion dollar industry so the amount of money that they're generating off of the sale the the sale of the software we're talking millions and millions and millions of dollars Mm -hmm. so they're using that money to not you know they're using the money that they're getting from the software that's then spying on everybody to go and fund all of their other covert operations which also include illegal activities and and violent crime so you can take that for what it is. The House Judiciary Committee actually looked into this as well, and there is a long list of of, of crimes that they're investigating in relation to this whole Inslaw uh, case. And some of those crimes involved the highest level justice officials, including private individuals, and we're talking conspiracy to commit an offense, fraud, wire fraud, obstruction of proceedings, tampering with a witness, retaliation against a witness, which there you go, retaliation against a witness. Mm-hmm. witness. What does that mean? Perjury, interference with commerce by threats or violence. So receiving stolen goods. I mean, racketeering. I mean, we're talking high-level organized crime going on here. So obviously, whenever you deal with organized crime, it's a very, very dangerous world. And there's obviously people who protect those, you know, organized criminals. And that's where it gets really dangerous if you start poking your way and probing into these different things is that they'll take you out. and, And that's just a fact. So Danny believed that this Inslaw scandal wasn't just some sort of standalone event. He really believed that the people in the Department of Justice who orchestrated it were involved in a much larger conspiracy. This larger conspiracy was really an umbrella of smaller conspiracies connected to make one giant one. This network again called the Octopus. According to Danny, the Octopus was an international cabal of people of influence and power operating outside of the public sphere. These individuals were involved in things like drug trafficking, murder, political espionage, arms dealing, biochemical warfare, politics, money laundering, and that's just a few. The Innslaught case was just one tentacle of this metaphorical octopus, and Danny made it his mission to identify other tentacles in order to connect them all back to the head. that's a bold, uh, bold mission there. Because if the octopus theory turned out to be true, then this would no doubt be an extremely dangerous mission for him. The Innslaw case itself was a big scandal and it seemed likely that Danny would run into some trouble if he started digging into things that the Department of Justice wanted to keep secret. So taking on the octopus was something he believed could cost him his life. If he uncovered the story, it'd be his magnum opus as a journalist. I mean, that would be imagine yeah. bringing this down and being the one to do it, Pretty right? Pretty fucking huge, yeah. It could literally change the entire world. That's how far this thing reaches. Mhm. But with something this serious, there would definitely be people looking to take Danny out before he's able to expose the truth on what's going on. But that, again, is all assuming that this whole theory is, in fact, true. But regardless, taking on a story like this would be enough to drive any sane person mad, as most conspiracy theories are. You can definitely Mm -hmm. drive yourself mad going down the rabbit hole, right? Oh,
1: for sure. Well, it starts making you question everything. Right. Nothing feels real anymore.
0: And it just keep most of them just keep on going too, yeah. and you're like, by the end of it, you're like, what's what's real anymore? <laughs> what's life anymore? I mean, Am you I question real? everything. Yeah, yeah. A Vanity Fair journalist and a friend of danny's said that the inslock case was enough to drive a sane man to madness, if not suicide. That's an interesting and kind of eerie quote. But Danny spent hundreds of hours working the phones, note taking, digging, looking for sources, and he became a full blown conspiracy theory researcher. It started to consume him, and his friends did start taking notice to how it was really affecting him mentally and physically. One of those friends was Anne Clank, one of Danny's exes who remained a close friend of his for over 12 years. She thought that ever since Danny started working on the story, that something about him was just different. He had changed, and his demeanor was more grim, because that's the other thing, too. is like It gets pretty dark in some of those oh, uh, yeah. conspiracy holes, for sure, you know? It could. I could definitely see how it affect your mental health Mm -hmm. and the stress, anxiety that it would create in, in you. Oh, totally. Could be overwhelming.
1: Yeah, I mean, we went through a period where we were just looking into so many conspiracies, and at some points, I felt like I was starting to lose it a little bit because it was so overwhelming, so intense, and it's so easy to become all consumed by it. You know. And well, it, can, it can really take effect on your mental health.
0: What you end up finding is just so shocking Yeah, that you're like, how can I possibly accept this? Because mm-hmm. if I do, and you start, that's the thing is you start thinking about the possibility that what if this is all true? Mm-hmm. You're like, oh my God.
1: And it's like, it most likely is.
0: <laughs> There's a good majority of it that absolutely could be. There's also some of it that seems, eh, maybe, yeah. but mm-hmm. maybe not as well. But again, when you're in the the thick of it, and imagine consuming yourself day and night every single day in this world.
1: That's heavy.
0: So one night, three weeks before his trip to Martinsburg, Danny asked her, quote, will you kiss me when I'm dead? That's a very weird thing to say. According to Danny's brother, Tony, Danny was going through financial issues in the months before his death. He had taken out two loans to finance his book on the octopus. But shortly before he died, he got word that his requests for more money were denied. This is important to remember. The book was also rejected by a publisher for being, quote, vague and unsubstantiated. So that gives you a little bit more insight into what he's working on. Danny was clearly very worried about this. He wrote to his agent, quote, in September, I'll be looking into the face of an oncoming train. What will I do? Days before he died, he told his friends that he was about to break a story uncovering a massive government corruption scandal. He told his family that he'd been getting death threats over the phone and that he was in danger. Now, these calls would come at random times, sometimes in the middle of the night, and the caller would threaten Danny's life. Danny's housekeeper could also verify that these calls did come in, since she had actually picked up the phone once or twice to answer those calls. The housekeeper says she picked up one of these calls hours after Danny died, which at the time, she had no idea that he had died when she answered this call. But this rules out the whole idea of that Danny just made this up because there is somebody to verify that he was getting death threats,
1: Mm -hmm. which adds a lot of credibility to the idea that he was taken out
0: right for months. Danny had been telling his brother, Tony quote, not to believe it if he died in an accident. So despite what Danny was telling his brother and others, there is a report from the department of justice that was foiled from their special counsel investigation into the whole Innslaw allegations in case and there's actually quite a bit of interesting information within this 466 page report on mr cassolero and i'm going to read just a few excerpts in here that are are kind of interesting and give a different perspective again i'm 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 a tad skeptical because, again, this is coming from Department of Justice. But again, if the the other flip side to that is, why would they let this be FOIA if there truly is a big government cover up? But anyways,
1: yeah, we just want to give you guys the full. This picture is and uh, decide for yourselves. Yeah, and we'll how much you trust. We'll link
0: this <laughs> article too if you want to go dive in here a little bit more. So this this document was released by the Department of Justice Office of Information Policy, but it was conducted by special counsel to the attorney general of the United States at the time. So there's information kind of going over a timeline of of Mr. castellaro's last days and there's an interesting tidbit here on August 6, 1991, which we're going to get into uh the timeline a little bit more here later, but I just want to read this this part because this comes from uh according to Olga uh Mokros or Mr. Casalaro's neighbor and housekeeper. Danny told her while she was helping him pack that he would not be seeing his son again. And his housekeeper also told us that he took her into his basement office and showed her where he kept his will. So that's that's a very interesting thing of note. Then it goes on to say there were other indications of strange and perhaps suicidal behavior as well. For example, in approximately May 1991, Danny was house-sitting for his friend Bill Webster and according to Miss Klink, Mr. Casolaro called her at 5 a.m. one morning and told her, he had hurt himself. He had said he had spent the night on the roof of the house and that he had fallen off and hurt his leg. Several days later, however, Mr. Webster called Miss Clink and told her he had found a broken ceramic object and some bloody towels in his basement. There is also another event that happened in approximately October 1990, and this comes from Miss Clink as well, that said that Danny had a mysterious auto accident in which his car went off the side of the highway. And Danny told Miss Clink, and wendy weaver that he thought he'd been forced off the road but he did not want to report the incident to the police or seek medical treatment so they were unable to learn enough about this incident to determine whether it was a legitimate accident or it was a staged suicide attempt or a homicide attempt and and really like the main thing in here i'm seeing is like all of his friends notice they' he become absolutely obsessed and all consumed with the octopus story by early 1991 and so based on those different things in here and again it's it's hard to you know take it for what it is because it's These are, I assume, testimony that were given during the investigation or interviews or something like that where they're questioning these individuals around Danny and that's how they're getting this information. But I am you know, a tad skeptical because it's coming from uh, the Department of Justice uh, releasing this. But again, just wanted to put that out there before we continue here. Now that we're in the busiest time of year, it's the holiday season. We love it and we hate it at the same time. Because sometimes it can just be so hard to find some peace in all the hectic chaos going on in our lives. But thanks to Raycon's earbuds, boy do I find some great and peaceful times of my day, especially at night. That's where the Raycons really come in clutch because their everyday earbuds fit perfectly into my little ear holes. And I must say, I'm blown away. By the audio for how affordable these earbuds are the audio is amazing it's definitely got that bass, or no matter what type of music you listen to whether it's audiobooks podcasts or for me quiet symphony beautiful sounds it helps me go to sleep and best of all if i do fall asleep with my everyday earbuds in i don't wake up with my ears screaming at me because they're so sore from the earbuds being in all night Nope, it's like they're almost not there at all. Raycon first made a name for themselves in the audio space. But over the past year, they've expanded their entire business with the introduction of Raycon PowerTech and Raycon Home. They've got a new Magic 180 charging cable, which provides hyper-speed charging to iOS, micro USB, and Type-C devices. It rotates 180 degrees and is built for durability. Oh man, that's that's really great to have a reliable, durable charging cable. They also have a faucet filter, which removes 99.9% of all the contaminants, bacteria, and chemicals in your drinking water. That's pretty cool. Raycon is known for delivering high quality and thoughtful features at half the price of other premium tech brands. It's no wonder their products have racked up tens of thousands of five-star reviews. I have a bunch of their products, absolutely love it. It also makes for a great gift because you're giving a good quality product at a very affordable price that will rival the more expensive brands. Plus, Raycon has an easy and free return guarantee, and they offer free shipping and buy now, pay later options. So hurry now to buyraycon.com slash to get 15% off your entire Raycon order. Perfect for last minute gifts or to ring in the new year. That's buyraycon.com slash to get 15% off Raycon products. Check it out at buyraycon.com slash milehigher.
1: But this brings us now to Thursday, August 8th, 1991. Danny told someone that he would be meeting up with a source in Martinsburg, West Virginia that would tie everything together, essentially connecting and validating his octopus theory. And that day, Danny left Fairfax for Martinsburg, a small town outside of D.C., and he checked into a motel, the Sheridan Inn, and was given keys to room 517. In his room, he dropped off his stuff, you know, freshened up and then left for dinner. Danny spent the next three and a half hours eating at the Stone Crab Inn. And during that time, he drank a whole bottle of wine and then he drove to the Pizza Hut that shared a parking lot with the Sheridan. And one of the last people to see him was actually a waitress at Pizza Hut. Remember when Pizza Hut had waitresses and was like a full-on restaurant experience? Good old days, man. Dude, I used to love going to Pizza Hut
0: back then. It was like the little buffet.
1: Yeah. They had a a salad bar too, right? It was lit. And those cups, remember the red cups? Yep, yep. Iconic. Anyway, I'm getting off track. But she said that Danny was in good spirits and flirted with her a little bit. And that he also quoted lines from a poem that was the Great Gatsby's epigraph. Danny ordered a pitcher of beer and a pizza. He ate and then went back to his hotel by 4 p.m. that day. Danny presumably spent an hour in his room. Then he went to the hotel bar. He stayed there drinking beer and talking to the bartender from 5 p.m. to last call, which was 11.30 p.m. So that's a good six hours, six and a half hours right there to cap off a pretty long day of drinking. While he was at the bar, he chatted with a man named Mike Looney, who was new to the Martinsburg area. As Danny drank, he told Mike about his ex-wife, his books, and, of course, his conspiracy theories. His demeanor was excited and upbeat, and Mike said that Danny seemed convinced that he was on to something big. But Danny also told Mike something very interesting. Danny said that he was waiting for a contact who hadn't shown up. Mike didn't know much else about this contact other than he was possibly an Arab American. So Danny's movements for that Thursday are pretty well accounted for. But the next day, Friday the 9th, there are more gaps in the timeline. It's a little confusing. It's unknown what he did that morning. But at 2 p.m., he met up with a contact, an engineer, named William Turner. Danny met up with him in the parking lot of the Sheridan because he was worried that his room was bugged, which I think is a pretty good worry to have would make sense. I mean, I'd be the same way.
0: Well, again, you got to remember he's receiving these calls and death threats and I'm sure he, he thinks he's being watched.
1: And he definitely could have been. William was a former employee at Hughes Aircraft. He gave Danny documents related to mismanagement at this company. He also gave him a story that involved the U.S. Navy. William said that Danny reacted positively to the meeting. Danny told him that this all fit into everything else that he had uncovered. And after this meeting, Danny went back to the Stone Crab Inn. From 2.30 to 5, he drank Bud Light, and the bartender said he seemed lonely and introspective. After 5, the timeline becomes a bit more blurry here. It's hard to say just what Danny was doing in Martinsburg and where. We do know that at 6 p.m. Danny called his mom and he told her he was on Route 81 in Pennsylvania and that he was heading home. Danny said that he would be running late to dinner and might not show up at all. Then at 10 p.m. he walked to a nearby Sheet's convenience store and purchased a coffee. But where Danny was from 5 to 10 p.m. that day is not known, which is a pretty good gap. And it's still a mystery who he could have talked to during these hours and what he could have done. So, Friday has, you know, these big gaps in the timeline in which he could have met with a source or maybe someone who wanted to harm him. And there would be no sightings of Danny until the next day, Saturday, August 10th, 1991. And sadly, this is when tragedy struck.
0: Because around 1230 to 1 p.m. that day, a Sheridan housekeeper knocked on the door of room 517. She heard no response and nobody came to the door. So, she decided to enter the room to do some routine cleaning. But when she entered the bathroom, that's when she discovered a horrifying scene. A man was lying in a bathtub full of bloodied water. He was dead, so the housekeeper immediately ran to tell someone, and the police were dispatched within minutes. They arrived at room 517 to find Danny Casolaro, dead at the age of 44. His death appeared to be a suicide, as police found a single, exacto razor blade in the bathtub and an apparent suicide note. There was also no other signs of struggle in the room. Now we're gonna take you through what police found in room 517, starting with the bedroom. During their search, police found Danny's black tote there. Inside the tote, investigators had found an empty prescription pill bottle belonging to Danny from a prior root canal from 1988. These items were also found in the tote. A box of hefty trash bags with two bags missing, two green lawn-type trash bags, three cartons of cigarettes, one unopened bottle of white wine, and a corkscrew. Danny's clothes were also laid out on the bed. His wallet and driver's license were inside his coat pocket, and five empty beer cans and a sheet's coffee cup were in the trash. On the coffee table, they found a box that held five razor blades. Four razor blades were still inside and unused, and the fifth was found inside the tub. The suicide note was also found written on a legal pad on the coffee table, and the note read, quote, To my loved ones, please forgive me, most especially my son, and be understanding, God will let me in. The ink used to write the note was matched to the pen provided by the hotel. And handwriting experts were able to match the note's handwriting to Danny's. Only one fingerprint was found on the legal pad, as it was Danny's right thumbprint. However, this is what's sketchy to me, and I'm sure sketchy to a lot of people, is that they did not find a briefcase or any documents in the hotel room. And imagine, this is a time where everything's being done on pencil Mm -hmm. paper, pen paper, and there's no documents of all this work that he's doing yeah what's gone fuck
1: that makes zero sense
0: and they still don't know what happened to it to this day
1: Mm -hmm. and that's why his family's
0: like clearly like where did all of his stuff go unless you know there is a time period we don't know what he did so unless he went and destroyed all of it before killing himself which is a possibility but it is very weird that why would he do that if he was this was his whole life at this point?
1: Yeah, I don't I mean I think he would want to at least leave it behind if if that was really the case for someone else to pick up on or
0: you would think, right? Yeah. They did find receipts from the Stone Crab Inn, but that was basically it. Obviously, this is very highly unusual. And Danny said he was going to Martinsburg to meet a source for his book. That was literally what he was doing. So now let's take a look at the bathroom. Next to the bathtub, there was a half-drunk bottle of white wine and a broken drinking glass. There was also a bloody towel. The wrapper for the razor blades was found sitting against the side of the tub. Bloody water had been found spattered across the bathroom to the sink area. The toilet seat bathroom floor and tile around the tub had bloodstains on it. The rim was dusted for fingerprints and two were matched to Danny. Inside the bathtub, there was an empty beer can, the razor, two white hefty bags, and a used shoelace. Another used shoelace was found loosely draped around Danny's neck. 30 minutes after the police showed up though, the coroner arrived to start their own investigation and she drained the bath water without even taking a sample.
1: God, Stuff like that is just so mind-blowingly frustrating.
0: So quickly, I do want to mention in the, in this particular report, the special counsel and I was reading from earlier on page 409 in the second paragraph, Ann Clank and Danny had actually discussed uh, killing themselves via a trash bag apparently or danny had discussed that with her so you know the signs point to danny having the trash bags as as potentially a backup plan or you know it was just there if he needed it because the way that he did die as it appears here again we don't i guess we don't really know for sure but danny was found nude in the bathtub his wrists had been slashed 12 times eight on his left wrist and four on his right wrist and one of the cuts was so deep that it actually severed a tendon. Ugh, Oof. God. His right arm laid over the side of the tub with his right hand on the floor, and three of his right-hand fingernails appeared to have been chewed. What the
1: fuck? What does that mean?
0: I don't know. I don't even know what to make of that. Three of his right fingernails. Corner hmm Coroner Brinning then classified Danny's death as a suicide. I mean, they have all the evidence, I guess, there. They have the suicide note, so that's, that's what they ruled his death as. Mm-hmm. Police searched his car, but they didn't find anything unusual. The Martinsburg police had locked the door to the room. But again, the scene was never formally sealed. It was never truly treated as like a crime scene. They never considered the possibility that maybe this was a staged suicide. Which, I mean, this happens all the time. Mm -hmm. Where police come in and if they feel like it's a suicide or even the the coroner is like this is a suicide. They jump to that conclusion Mm -hmm. without considering somebody could stage a suicide scene. Or there could be some forced suicide going on or something like that against as well type of thing.
1: I mean, it's very sloppy. So later that day, Danny's body was transported to a funeral home in Martinsburg and coroner Brenning spent two hours examining his body and took a blood sample from his heart. She also asked for next of kin to be notified. And before coroner Brenning left the funeral home, the home's owner asked if he could embalm the body. Brenning said that she was releasing the body to the funeral home no autopsy would be conducted because this was a suicide and the body could be embalmed. She said the cause of death was blood loss. But Danny's family was not notified about his death until two days after he was found dead. Two days.
0: And not even given the option of not embalming his body so that an autopsy
1: could be done. And not only is embalming a body before an autopsy can be conducted and without notifying the family, extremely sketchy but it's also illegal in West Virginia there are some possible reasons for this maybe the funeral home thought they were doing the family a preemptive favor in a way or they didn't Mm. want to work late could be that
0: (laughs) good one no this is uh screams cover-up to me yeah
1: that's that's definitely the way I'm. I mean, they're
0: doing too. something illegal. You you don't think that they knew that they were doing something illegal? They're yeah, a funeral home. I, they probably do this I, deal with this all the time. I do think so. It's like, oh, let's hurry this along.
1: Mm-hmm. And the Fairfax Police reported that they couldn't get a hold of next of kin at 5 p.m. that day, and this was before Danny was embalmed. So this was actually technically legal because funeral homes can embalm a body if no next of kin can be contacted. But Bernie should have obviously waited to get the okay. Yeah, that's not a skin. lot of time. No.
0: I mean, as we know, other corners keep bodies for a very, very, very long yep. time yep. before anything happens. Mm-hmm. So it
1: seems highly unusual.
0: Legal or not, I'm calling, calling bullshit. This is sketchy, man.
1: As you guys know, Josh and I have a lot of pets. We have 10 animals and they are all mammals. And we have three cats who we love. We've had them for over 10 years. And over the years, we have tried every brand of litter out there. And it has been so hard to find the best litter that is not going to stink up our house.
0: Yeah. Or make me cough out my lungs because when I'm scooping it, (laughs) I'm getting blasted by all the dust from it. Mm -hmm. Nasty, man. That is until we found pretty litter and now we can never go back to any other type of litter because pretty litter instantly traps odor they drop a bomb it's almost (laughs) as if it never happened it's it traps those odors in that ultra absorbent low dust lightweight crystal litter it's beautiful honestly when it comes out of the bag fresh i often gaze into the litter (laughs) box at just how beautiful it is as the light reflects off the crystals it's this white I don't know, there's just something uh it's something pretty. so satisfying it's about pretty. pouring out a new bag of, of pretty litter.
1: And what's great is one six pound bag works for up to a month without clumping. That means no more wasting litter.
0: And cats hate clumps.
1: They do. But for us, the reason above all else that we love Pretty Litter is it gives us peace of mind, especially now that all our cats are—are they considered seniors? They're all over. Yes, they're all seniors. They're all on senior food now. I'm in denial, but yes, one of our cats is about to turn—I think 14. Yes, 14. Cannot believe that. And so, obviously, we're worried about their health. And Pretty Litter's crystals change color to indicate early signs of potential illnesses in our cats, like urinary tract infections, kidney issues, and more.
0: That's super nice because cats are not great about like letting you know no, what's going like, on with them they'll just hide and yep
1: they're designed to, to keep that from you just so like this that. gives you a
0: visible indicator yep and obviously it's a little bit harder for us with three you know we have to do process of elimination sometimes mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. figure it out but luckily all of our cats are healthy and we haven't had any issues but it's nice to know pretty litter's got our back
1: and pretty litter is convenient because it ships right to our door so we never run out and we don't have to lug those huge kitty litter oh, bags
0: heavy boxes yeah
1: into that you know, from the store to our car and then into the house and then it stores easily in our house because it's so small
0: so that's why we count on pretty litter to keep our house smelling fresh and clean and you can too go to pretty litter.com slash to save 20% on your first order that's pretty litter.com slash to save 20 freaking percent on your first order check it out pretty com slash mile terms and conditions apply seaside for details
1: but the Fairfax police actually didn't make much of an effort to contact Next of kin. of oh, course. what do you know? They literally went to Danny's house, knocked, and left a business card when nobody answered. And that was it. And if they had just looked in the phone book for a few seconds, they could have found his brother. But they literally dropped the card off and gave up without trying. And they said they just couldn't find anyone. After two days had passed since Danny's death, finally... Martinsburg police did what the Fairfax police should have. A Martinsburg PD sergeant called Tony, who was with his mother, and gave them the news. And his mother's first reaction when she heard the news, and this is a quote, was, they've killed him. And Tony asked the police over the phone why they were just now being notified. And the sergeant didn't know why. He said that he just thought the Casalaros had already been notified.
0: Which I, I can imagine this is probably a very difficult conversation to have because Tony's pissed. He's like, Why am I now just hearing about this? But ultimately Fairfax was the one that fucked up and they didn't actually notify anybody. Mm-hmm. So of course Martinsburg has to do you know, do the hard work and be like, Well, we don't know why either. They just something happened on their side, but you know, we're here telling you now. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I can I, I can only imagine how pissed Tony was what that phone call oh my was
1: like god and of course tony asked about danny's investigation and all of those papers he had with him and the sergeant didn't know what he was talking about he said they found no papers in the room no briefcase nothing but of course that makes absolutely no sense where was his briefcase filled with files you know danny had been working on this case for so long and it was his life and of course he had files on him so where were they And Tony informed the sergeant about death threats against Danny. So, an autopsy was arranged in West Virginia, and the autopsy was conducted by the state medical examiner, Dr. James Frost. He said that Danny's body did not have any trauma or contusions that would indicate a struggle. The autopsy found Danny was in the earliest stages of multiple sclerosis. And it's unknown whether or not Danny actually knew about this at this time, but based on everything we know, probably wasn't aware
0: they also did some urine tests and they found trace amounts of tricyclic antidepressants tylenol vicodin and alcohol which was at 0.04 in his urine again these are all trace amounts and the blood sample taken from his heart did not have traces of alcohol in it however The pill bottle found in his room was likely the source of the Vicodin and Tylenol traces. The tricyclic antidepressant could not be traced, and Tony said Danny's medical records show no indication he was prescribed anything for depression. The open bottle of wine was tested for drugs and came back negative. The state medical examiner ruled Danny's manner of death as suicide and the cause of death as exsanguination, or aka blood loss. He estimated the time of death between 7 and 8 a.m. on Saturday, August 10, 1991, he said that Danny likely lost consciousness between five to eight minutes after cutting himself and died within 15 minutes. As soon as Anne Klenk found out that Danny was dead, she raced over to Danny's basement office and she found five boxes of octopus related notes inside and took them. It was actually a promise Anne made to Danny that summer. Again, multiple times, Danny told Anne that if she'd heard he'd met with an accident, aka foul play, to make sure, quote, I got that shit out of there. Ann kept the boxes with ABC's Nightline for safekeeping, and the family allowed a group of journalists to pore over the files. This is what one reporter has to say about them. They said they didn't find hard evidence or solid research to back up the octopus theory. Instead, they found a lot of news clippings. The reporter wrote, quote, There were stories on drug running, on the sales of arms to Iraq, on arms technology transfers. The stories could have easily been contained in a file labeled Major American Scandals 1950-1991, to There were also random original song lyrics and poetry found in the notes. There were no taped interviews, just a lot of phone numbers Danny had written down. Those who knew Danny were highly suspicious of the suicide conclusion from the jump, as they did not think Danny would have killed himself. He did have two bruises that hadn't been explained, one on his head and one on the inner part of his left arm. Some people think that this is proof that he wasn't alone in his final moments, however, the state medical examiner said that these bruises likely appeared two days before Danny's death which this is kind of puzzling. Bruises are easy to acquire during day-to-day life, and often we don't remember how we got them because you know you hit your head, getting into the car, bump your arm or leg or whatever, on a table, furniture, and you just forget about it. But let's just say for a second he did kill himself. I do believe that this would explain the head bruise if he had lowered himself into the tub and laid back. The bruises could be recent even from that day or maybe even that same hour, but that doesn't mean that they had to come from another person. According to family and his housekeeper, Danny was afraid of getting blood drawn needles and seeing his own blood in general. Ex-girlfriends also said he was uncomfortable being seen naked. So it didn't make sense they would kill himself in the way that he supposedly did and be found naked. That, and again, Danny grew up very Catholic. The family thinks that Danny writing about God, letting him in in the suicide note is a clear tip off that he didn't kill himself. That's because Danny believed according to teaching that suicide would prevent him from getting into heaven. Danny's brother, Tony, like the rest of the family, believes that Danny was murdered. This is what he thinks happened. Quote, someone stands over him and says, you write the suicide note, or my partner who's standing with your son will, you know, kill your son, and Danny would just go fine. Tony says that Danny was a strong guy. He probably would have resisted his captors, but if he believed they would hurt his son, then he would have done anything to stop that from happening, including laying down his own life.
1: I think that makes a lot of sense.
0: I do, too. Tony thinks that at the captor's directions, Danny ran the bath, undressed, got in, and then cut his wrist with a blade provided by the captors. So in 1993, Special Counsel Judge Nicholas J. Bua released that report I've been referencing earlier on the Innslaw Promise Affair. The Department of Justice released their report on the matter the next year. And again, these reports both discuss Danny's death and uphold the suicide conclusion.
1: Yeah, this is incredibly weird. So at Danny's funeral, a decorated military officer with a man in plain clothes approached the coffin and the military man placed a medal on Danny's coffin, saluted, and then walked off. And later after the funeral, all the attendees who knew Danny said they had no idea who this man was. And that was like 50 people or so. They said no one knew who he was or why he's there and saluting him. It's so bizarre. So,
0: my here's my one thought to that. Okay. Is potentially this guy was a contact of his that we just didn't know about. You know what I mean? He did have a lot of contacts, you know, whistleblowers and people yeah, within yeah, yeah. the government that maybe he never wrote their name down and nobody had ever met him or knew he talked to this person other than him and he showed up. Cause it's like, why else would he put a medal on his coffin if they weren't close in some way? I mean, that's, you know, or it's, government saving face trying to look like they care i don't know i don't know i it's think that, i weird. think
1: the first idea is much more spot on and it de- definitely makes you think why is he saluting him it's almost like thanking like you
0: you did yeah. did good service here yeah yeah
1: and that he knew that he lost his life right because of that or the cause you know mm-hmm. that's kind of what i took away yeah. from that i feel like that's it was so one strange. of his
0: whistleblower contacts probably though
1: Mm-hmm. So Danny was buried at the Columbia Garden Cemetery in Arlington, Virginia. In 2008, Danny's cousin, Dominic Orlando, wrote a stage play about Danny titled, Danny Casolaro Died for You. And in 2017, so pretty recently, FOIA requests revealed long hidden information related to the investigation into Danny's death. An FBI task force was assembled to look into Danny's mysterious death in 1992. These task force members had been questioning the conclusion of suicide and thought the case needed to be looked into further.
0: That's interesting. Yeah. but The FBI even looked into it. Mm-hmm.
1: They're mm. like, what the fuck? And this had to be a pretty high level of doubt because it was unspoken that the questioning of the official conclusion was a risk to their careers.
0: So even the FBI was like, the hey. fuck? We got to look at this. this yep. is, something's not right about this. Mm-hmm. This death.
1: There also was the fact that in 1992, around the time that the FBI investigation began, they were telling Congress that they weren't investigating Danny's death, which, as we can see, clearly isn't true. Multiple different people used FOIA to request these FBI files on Danny in February of 2016. The FBI acknowledged that month that they had about 1,380 pages in his file and would release them. But instead... Interestingly enough, they only released 29 Mm. pages from the file. Hmm, yeah, very weird. Again, in June, FOIA requesters asked for the full file, but the FBI again acknowledged that they had 1,380-some pages on Danny. But, of course, they still did not release them. And finally, in July, the DOJ gave a mind-boggling explanation for why the files weren't released. They said that the files were missing, and had always been missing. Funny how it works. They're yeah. Like, oh, we can't find it.
0: It's funny how it's two different agencies kind of like pinned yeah. against each other. It's like the FBI saying one thing, then the Department of Justice saying another thing.
1: And it's like, you know, so often we're always questioning, is is it a lie or are they generally that disorganized and disorganized and incompetent that they actually do? lose, lose shit, them? yeah. Which it does happen. It happens in cases all the but time. But out
0: of thirteen hundred files, yeah they only have or pages, they only have 29 left. Mm-hmm. Come on, man.
1: Yeah, that's.
0: I mean, I wouldn't put it past them, but. Sketch, but screaming sketch, very... screaming cover
1: up. So the FBI literally said twice that they had the files, and then the DOJ just said, we don't have them.
0: Yeah, I don't know. It, this just leaves me with more questions and answers, honestly.
1: Yeah, I think everyone feels like that.
0: But ultimately, let's just discuss a little bit, kind of wrap up our thoughts here yeah. on on Danny's suspicious death because it's one of two things either Mm -hmm. he took his own life or he was murdered
1: and there are you know there are there's evidence kind of backing up both of those i
0: think i can disprove the evidence against or not i can't 100 percent disprove but i have a theory as to Mm -hmm. what happened especially with this special counsel report because i find it very very convenient that all of a sudden they have all this information proving that this was a suicide Mm-hmm. after this this report comes out. And they've already been, they already were doing this. I mean, I can go look and see what the Department of Justice was involved in. And witness, retaliation against a witness is one of the things. Tampering with a witness. I think they tampered with the witnesses in this case. Mm-hmm. I think Ann Clenk and all of them were intimidated into giving them the information that they wanted to back up the story
1: it's like you don't comply yeah they're You're like gonna tell us like danny
0: right tell us that he was depressed and that he was talking to you about mm-hmm. all of these things
1: maybe just your theory
0: yeah it's just my opinion but, but i i mean i agree with you. i'm very sus
1: so let's let's talk about the suicide theory here so his family says that danny wasn't depressed however we do know that People are often good at hiding depression. Sure, sure, It happens often, especially family that, you know, doesn't see them as often. And if Danny was having suicidal thoughts, knowing his family was very anti-suicide and, you know, he also had his own feelings about that, that may have caused him to feel shame and want to hide that from his family. So that is a possibility. And his drinking was clearly ev- heavily elevated in those last 48 hours, which, is a concern, and on Friday, the bartender said he seemed lonely and introspective, so you can't ignore those facts. It also does seem really odd that if this was a murder set up to be a suicide, that the method would be to cut his wrists, and Tony's theory is that someone told him to get into the tub and cut his own wrists, and this sounds incredibly involved and weird, not out of the possibilities, but it, it is strange, right? Right. Wouldn't an easier method would have been to have him hang himself instead? The perpetrator would be relying on the victim to cut deep enough and then have to sit there and wait for him to die. It's just strange.
0: Well, and I thought he was scared of needles and seeing his own blood. So yeah, this is yeah. a, this to me doesn't add up. This but
1: method. if you are being threatened with your son's life, you're going to do anything right. as a parent. Which right? I
0: think is a very real possibility here. That that's He was being forced to do this. Mm-hmm. Because it's the most convincing in their eyes. Because I mean, think about it from a professional assassination point of view. You want to make this look as convincing as possible. Mm-hmm. A hanging, not not as convincing as somebody who slashes their wrist. Like yeah, it's, that it's, seems- it's a lot easier to I guess, you know, think of other ways that this could have happened versus somebody who's in the bathtub naked who had slashed their wrists. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So that is like one of the most convincing ways to prove somebody took their own life Yeah. from their eyes, right? Right. From, right. The, from a professional assassin's point of view.
1: Very true. Very true. But I mean, there would have been easier ways to do it too at the same time. You know, they could have had him drink a bottle or two bottles of liquor and that would have even been maybe easier than a staged hanging so why pick the cutting method the
0: the other thing that comes to mind too is like if somebody he had a captor some who was there and was assisting in this
1: mm-hmm.
0: how are they not seen coming into the hotel they would have likely gotten some sort of fluids or blood on them being in this bloody scene so it just it'd be very It'd be definitely hard to like sneak into a hotel room, have all this go down, be a part of it, and then also leave. But at the same token, maybe not. Maybe it would be nobody would know. You yeah. Know, I mean especially involved, back then. But- this
1: is so it's was so different back then. And with the, you know, just horrible handling of the crime scene, there's it's possible they did leave things like that behind and it just wasn't you know, a thorough investigation. So, but
0: the drinking is very curious. Mm-hmm. He was doing a ton of drinking. He really was. And if you're in a, you know, your mental space is not good, that's not going to help by no. any means. No, because he was drinking all day. It wasn't like just somebody forced him to drink a bunch. No, that night, you know, whenever he decided to do this, yeah, and he was drunk at that point. Like he had been seen drinking at multiple points throughout the and it's day.
1: Described as being lonely and mm-hmm. introspective. But again, those people could have been coerced into saying those things. So it's just, it's so tough. It could really go either way. And then if you look at the embalming, this could be explained by incompetence rather than a cover-up because, you know, as we have learned recently, <laughs> yeah, you know, sometimes funeral homes aren't as thorough as they appear to be. Or competent. They get very sloppy. So as far as motive for this, Danny was adrift for a few years looking for a big story that Maybe he thought it wasn't panning out the way he thought it would. Maybe he felt like he got so close but couldn't get proof of this big conspiracy. Maybe he is despondent and trying to hold things in as he is known to internalize. And there's also the possibility that maybe he set the stage to look like he was taken out rather than killed himself, especially because he was like telling people that that could happen. But yeah. obviously that can go either way. But it's, it's just an idea. It would be, in a sense... Um, validation for his quest. Make it seem like he was onto something big and taken out for it. You know, valorization. Yeah.
0: Th- this to me, like, I go back and forth between murder and suicide. And for me, this valorization of death actually makes a lot of sense. And Danny reminds me a lot of another journalist named Mari Terry, who investigated the uh, Sons of Sam shootings
1: oh yeah you were telling me about which is i don't know much about that case
0: crazy case
1: yeah from what you've told me holy Um, fuck
0: there's a really great netflix series on the Mm -hmm. sons of sam case Mm -hmm. and if you don't know the gist of the sons of sam case basically there's a bunch of shootings in new york and police had no idea what was going on they could not catch the guy they finally get a guy it's uh david berkowitz and they basically said you did all these shootings like it was like serial killings But it was like all over the place. It was like there was no way one person could be in all these places when these shootings were happening. So it was very clear based on the evidence that there was more than one person involved in this. But the police, they were so under duress. They're like, it was Berkowitz. But this guy, Mari Terry, got so obsessed with this case and he he talked to David Berkowitz and he started uncovering that there's this conspiracy here. There's more than one person. It's Sons of Sam for a reason. There's multiple sons. There's multiple people in a part of this. And this rabbit hole goes deep. I mean, yeah, deeper than this one. Mm-hmm. This goes all the way into a satanic cult. Elron Ron Hubbard, Scientology's involved in this. We're talking Hollywood elites involved in nefarious satanic activities. I mean, and it goes all over the country and Mari gets so obsessed with this and figuring out the, the root, you know, the head of the octopus in this case. Mm -hmm. And it does the same thing to Mari that this conspiracy did to Danny. Potentially. Potentially, right? Like just so much so that you're just so consumed at like, you feel like you're getting to the end of it. You feel like you're figuring it out. But at the same time, you're you're just every like your whole life is derailing. You're unhealthy. You're you're losing your mind essentially. And you know, there's a lot of people who he wrote a book called Ultimate Evil. Recommend checking it out if you're interested in, in learning more about uh, Mari Terry's investigation. But it it destroyed his life. And I see a lot of similarities here with Mari and Danny because I think when you get like you feel like you're to something big like this, and it's so I don't even know what the right word is is like juicy and there's like just so much there to investigate and you start getting all these contacts and like maybe you're on the right road you start getting these these inclinations that oh I'm I'm actually figuring shit out I'm actually getting somewhere and then when you get to the end of that road and it sort of just ends and you don't figure out what happens it leaves you completely mad frustrated depressed because you're like I just spent all this time and effort and mental energy physical energy to investigate this and I'm just at at the end and there's nowhere else to go. Yeah. And I think that's a possibility with Danny is that he just got to the end of the road and potentially he's just like I can't do I'm just so depressed I'm just so like I've compl- like basically ruined my life in doing this. I ruined my, you know, relationships, my personal relationships and and it's just like there's no way out at that point which from that lens makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. and instead of just taking your own life and that's how everybody remembers you, why not take your own life in a way that makes people believe that this conspiracy you were working on was what ended up taking you out mm-hmm. because you were getting so close to, to the truth that they had to take you out and therefore it's a, this valorization of death. and I think that's a very real possibility here
1: yeah. And plus, one of the names that Danny used as a working title for his book was literally "Death of a Poet." So that's interesting to note. And the note was short, but he can't bear not to say anything to his son, even if he's staging things. He would rather his Catholic family believe that he was murdered, right? Than killed that's himself. true.
0: That that could have been the reason too. Mm-hmm. Maybe he's just like, I don't want my my family to have to deal with the fact that they think I'm in hell. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. I didn't make it into heaven
1: and it just validates everything that he was working on you know if he felt like I don't know and it, like it again Danny
0: was involved with a lot of very uh sketchy individuals you know
1: and of course you know his family it's possible that they couldn't accept that he committed suicide for that very reason because they are Catholic and you know, suicide is a mortal sin.
0: Well, and he was telling them though too, you have to remember he was telling them that like over and over again, that if something happens, it's not an accident. Yeah. So, you know, that that's what they were hearing from him. So of course they're, they believe him too.
1: And it's like, you can take that either way though. Right. Cause that could really lead to the murder theory as well. So, which,
0: which we've already kind of talked about a lot of this cause it's like, you know, why, why not stage a suicide otherwise with a gun hanging? And I mean, again, it's just not as convincing as somebody slashing their wrists.
1: But I could um, totally see that he would have killed himself because it would be easier for his family to believe um, that he was murdered right. instead of taking his own life because then they would think that he's burning in hell for the rest of eternity.
0: Yeah, and that coupled with like his legacy and his work. You yeah. know what I mean? He doesn't want to be remembered as like the crazy conspiracy guy that yeah. that wasted his life chasing something that never existed in the first place, right?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, there definitely are a lot of things that lent to that theory. There's I'm not also saying that I believe it. I'm not I'm not even really sure what I believe, to be honest, but it is you know,
0: there I mean again the the main thing that i go back to the murder theory is because there you know there's been at least four other deaths suspicious deaths surrounding the octopus Mm -hmm. theory Mm -hmm. of individuals similar to danny who had been in probing various aspects of this octopus conspiracy who also suspiciously died and they they ruled them as suicides as well and all of those victims families also believe they were murdered as well could it be the same situation as danny where it's just like this is You know, it's the opposite side. They were chasing something they would never find, and when they found out it wasn't there, they just couldn't take it. Or is there something more here? And there's uh, there's actually a case called the Octopus Murders, which I won't even get into today because it's a whole other rabbit hole. But
1: it might be an interesting one for us to dive into. But it kind of it
0: definitely plays off this. But Mm -hmm. a whole family was executed by uh, this ex military guy who was a mafia hitman. So and he was intertangled with with some of these agencies as well. So there's definitely like there's definitely sketchy shit going on. Totally. And I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility that this was a some type of hit put out on Danny by organized uh c- criminal cuz they do exist and you know they just ruled it a suicide to hopefully cover it up and sweep it under the rug and they went and actually when they went, they either fabricated the things that are listed in this this special counsel report, or they went and actually told the witnesses, they're like, hey, this is what we need from you to, in order, you know, we need you to tell us exactly this, and that's what they gave them, was no, he was depressed, he was suicidal, and these are the things that I observed of Danny, and that's how they came to that conclusion. So it's it's, I mean, it's a conspiracy, so it's always hard to know what to believe, but I think it's good to keep an open mind on it Because you just never know. At the end of the day, and again, I'd like to. We only have twenty nine pages from that that report, or the twenty nine files. So what what's going on there? So still, lots of questions. Who is giving the death threats? So if Danny was right about the octopus theory, then there's no doubt that there would be very powerful and dangerous people who would stop at nothing to silence him. And I think there's other evidence to reflect that that is true. In this case and other cases, especially surrounding the octopus theory and just government corruption in general. I mean, we see it all the time and, you know, there's so many other stories out there of individuals who, who have crazy stories about being intimidated by, you know, men in black or government officials or, you know, random people who just show up at your doorstep. So, you know, it's definitely a slippery slope if you start going down, down the government conspiracy rabbit hole. on on all sides really but we want to know your thoughts on this one i know we just hit you with a lot of information it's a lot to digest um we'll definitely leave some of the the reports and stuff that we were referencing in this below for you to take a look at if you're interested i'm
1: curious josh what's your where do you lean
0: i'm still at the end of the day i'm going to go with murdered really i think you i think a hit was put out on him yeah
1: i i lean that way too Although there is some evidence, convincing evidence for suicide as well. So it's tough. I, I really don't know. I think the investigation was so botched too that. Yeah, well they rushed to, it. They yeah.
0: you know quickly were like, all mess. right, clean it up. Mm-hmm. Suicide. Yep. Embalm him. Yeah. Good to go. You know what I mean? It was very yep. quick. There's a lot of like coincidences here, if if that's what they are. Yeah. That mm, fishy and to me.
1: Why would the FBI and DOJ not release those files
0: yeah that's what i'm saying is like why not release all that if it's not a cover-up if it's not sketchy Mm -hmm. then just release all the files
1: and maybe there's really not much to make of it but the guy at the funeral who saluted him and gave put the medal that's so weird to me but i don't know that's
0: weird and the fact that all of his files were missing from his hotel room Yeah, that's he literally went to meet with somebody on a book and all of the files that he had are gone yeah disappeared yep he could have he could have destroyed them. There is time that he could have done that. We we didn't know about, yeah. but why would he do that? That's
1: a huge thing that leads me to It to reminds murder. me
0: of Nikola Tesla. So true. Right? Yes. The FBI came into his Sweeped hotel room, up. stole all of his shit, and then denied. They're like, oh Yeah,
1: no. and that was uh,
0: they just disappeared. Donald Trump's
1: uncle, right?
0: Yeah, it was like one of his uh, uh I can't remember his, his name. relatives look it up? who was the uh worked for the alien Alien property custodian. Uh, alien property custodian office. Yeah, yeah. John
1: Trump. I'm pretty sure it is. John. Yeah, Trump. it's
0: John Trump. That's who it yeah. is. Yeah. Which
1: is such a weird connection. I know, there right? Too. It's very interesting. I mean, there's so much sketchy shit. That Talk happened. about These conspiracies, happening man. All I mean, the, it's the time. It's just so weird. Yeah. It's yeah. hard
0: not to be, be a, uh, a conspiracy theorist. I feel like when it comes to the government, man. There's just so yeah. much.
1: Well, let us know your thoughts, guys. We always love to hear your you know, conclusions and opinions on these things and and why. So let us know.
0: But yeah, that's going to be it for us today. Thanks again for joining us for another episode of Mile Higher, baby. We'll see you guys next week. And until then,
1: keep on taking your mind a mile higher.